turn to the book of Exodus. If you don't uh, have a Bible, we have a number of those in our lobby. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. Um, If you're looking at your Bible going, where's Exodus? Pretty easy book to find. Uh, Open to the first book, which is Genesis. Flip about 50 pages, and then you'll get to the next book, which is Exodus. It's a huge book, um, so it would be hard to skip over. Um, And this morning, uh, we start a sermon series that is going to run us well into uh, next year. This will be a very lengthy sermon series. And so from now, uh, really up until almost Christmas time, we'll do an Advent series. Uh, But up until then, we'll be walking through the book of Exodus. We'll take a break moving through the holidays. Uh, First couple weeks in January, we will pick this back up. And this will run us into... Uh, well into the month of May, maybe even into uh, the early part of June. So we're going to spend a lot of time uh, in the book of Exodus. Now, uh, this morning, I want to do something a little bit different than how we typically preach uh, and teach uh, on, on a given Sunday morning. Normally, we'd open a couple minutes of introductory remarks, maybe launch into the text and go from there. But this week, as I and the last couple weeks, just studying the book and thinking about uh, really the broad overview and the broad scope of the book of Exodus, I just found myself over and over and over again um, saying, well, you know, we got to talk about that and, and we got to engage that and it would be helpful to know that. And what I didn't want to do is I didn't want to rush through an introduction and miss some really key pieces up front. But I also didn't want to take a long time on an introduction and race through chapter one and miss some really key and crucial items that are happening there. So what we're going to do today is is we're going to step back and we're going to spend the entirety of our time on creating a framework and overviewing the book of Exodus. And in fact, in your bulletins, you probably found uh, this uh, little half sheet on the book of Exodus. Now, um, that is not there because I was bored this week and had nothing better to do. Um, I need something else to do like I need another hole in the head. So uh, the reason that this is in your bulletin is we believe this is going to be a really helpful tool for us as we move through the book of Exodus. In fact, we'll draw from some of the things that you find uh, on this uh, today, but also throughout the series. My encouragement to you is to stick this in your Bible, and every Sunday when you get to church, just pop it out and have it there in front of you uh, and be able to reference this. Uh, But really what I want to do this morning is I want to take probably 10, 15 minutes and just give us this broad uh, overview of where Exodus finds itself in the biblical narrative, where it finds itself in God's story, how we're to understand it. And then we'll spend the remainder of our time walking through uh, what you'll see on this sheet, the major themes in the book of Exodus. Uh, We will preach through a particular text and work through um, those and giving us something, a structure or a framework that we can hold on to uh, as we move through this book over the next number of months. Um, But before we do anything else, let me do this. Let me pray for us and for our time together and ask the Lord to have his way within us. Pray with me. Uh, Lord Jesus, as we come before you, uh, God, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for uh, the ways in which you plan on instructing and leading and guiding us not only today, uh, but in the coming months uh, through the book of Exodus and in the coming years uh, through the totality of your word. And God, we pray that by the power of your spirit, you would have the freedom to move and work in and amongst your people in a manner, in a way uh, that you find uh, acceptable and pleasing and good and right. And God, not only for us, uh, as is our custom to pray for another church in the area, I pray for Dennis Haroldson and for David Holitz as they're at Providence uh, Christian Church here in Rio Rancho. And we pray for those guys as they lead that body, as they preach your word. Would you uh, be moving and working within them? Would you be ministering uh, in and through that body of believers in our community here, uh, making much of your name? And God, for us here in these next few moments, as we uh, walk through uh, the, the particular text that you have for us, uh, but also just these, these major themes and these things that you want to speak into our lives, we pray uh, that you would give us wisdom. We pray that you would give us uh, insight and instruction and that you would be uh, glorified in uh, our time in your word. And so, Jesus, we thank you and we just pray this all in your name and all God's people said, amen. amen. All right, well, let me begin uh, with maybe posing this question. I've had this question asked of me uh, a couple of times by some people. And the question is this, why Exodus? There's 66 books in the Bible of all the places you could have gone, of all the things that are going on in the world, of uh, of all the different things that uh, that, that we could teach on. Why are you going to go to a book that's over three millennia old? 
Why go there? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, I always love it when you ask questions that line up with my sermon notes. That makes it really helpful for me. All right. But um, let me give you three reasons. Let me give you three reasons why we're going to walk through the book of Exodus and why we're going to spend so much time in the book of Exodus. Here's reason number one. And truly, this is the only reason that we need. But uh, maybe in my kindness, I'll give you two other reasons. Here's the first one. Because it's God's word. That's why. Okay? Because it's God's word. God inspired Exodus. I think sometimes we have this mistaken notion that the Old Testament is somehow less inspired or it's less God's word. Okay, you don't flip to the Old Testament and be like, well, that's like JV when it comes to the scriptures. But yeah, you want to go to the Gospels or the Epistles, that's varsity, okay? Uh, no, no, listen. It's all or nothing. You get it all or you get none of it. But, but God's word isn't diminished over time. It doesn't have like a shelf life or a half life. It's a, well, it's been three millennia, so it's only like 80% effective now. No, no. Listen, this is God's word and it is inspired by God. And so we need no other reasons outside of that reason alone as to why we would preach the book of Exodus. But let me give you two others because I think they're really helpful for us in understanding some of the bigger picture and what God has for us. Um, Second reason as to why Exodus, it's because it's part of God's story. This is part of God's story. And, and, And let me press that a little bit further. And here's what I mean by this. This is the context that frames the gospel. This is the setting and the understanding and the context that we're to understand the ministry and the life of Jesus through. It's rooted in an Old Testament understanding. And if we don't have that understanding, then it's hard to fully understand what's going on in the Gospels or the Epistles or the Book of Acts. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that when we lose the context or the backstory of the gospel, it actually undermines our ability to fully understand, to fully know, and to fully appreciate the gospel itself. See, you can't parachute in at Matthew 1 and be like, well, I like this better, so I'm just going to run from this point forward. Actually, the, the, the humor in that is if you were to parachute in on Matthew 1, what do you find? Anybody know? You find a list of a bunch of guys' names who all lived in the Old Testament. So from the very beginning of the New Testament, what they're telling you is, hey, you got to look back. you you got to see this. There's a broader story here. Jesus does not live or exist or function in a vacuum. He's part of a much larger, grander story. And so the concept of sin, the concept of judgment and atonement, all of this stuff is laid out for us in the Old Testament. Now tied to this, this idea of part of God's story, here's... um, let me just come out and say it. More and more we are becoming as, not only as a society, be a society, but even in the church, we are becoming more and more biblically illiterate. And I, I don't say that with anger. I don't say that in condescension. What I'm just telling you is what, what used to be commonly known in society with respect to the Old Testament is not always the case anymore. So where we could assume a certain knowledge or a certain understanding, we can't even do that anymore. And I'm not saying that 50 years ago, everybody was saved. What I'm saying is 50 years ago, 100 years ago, people had a broader understanding of, of at least the major aspects of the Old Testament and how that then was to be understood in light of the New Testament, where by and large, we just don't have that. And so one of the reasons we're going to spend so much time in the book of Exodus is we want to help recapture that. And so why Exodus? Well, it's God's word. It's part of God's story. But here's the other side of this, and I think is probably the most applicable uh, for us. I mean, they're all applicable, but this one really intersects with our life. And it's this final reason that the story of Exodus is our story. You're going to see your story play out over the next number of months in this book that took place potentially 3,500 years ago. That's roughly the time frame as to when these events were actually unfolding. And yet what you will find over and over and over again in the coming weeks is, man, that sounds a whole lot like my story. Now, the specifics are going to change, but the principles and the truths are going to be exactly the same. Right? These people are going to be, they're going to be saved by redemption through sacrifice. Hmm. How are you and I saved? Gee, that sounds awfully familiar, doesn't it? The result of their salvation is going to be to enjoy the presence of God. Man, that kind of sounds a whole lot like what you and I are after. 
And while it will never be explicit, you're not ever going to come to a particular chapter or verse, I would argue that the book of Exodus is one of the most gospel-centric books in all of the scriptures, Old or New Testament. Now, Moses, right, Moses didn't sit out and begin to write this and go, hey, you know, I know no one else knows who Jesus is, but God has given me this insight, and I know this guy's coming, but he's like way out there, so I'll just kind of veil it. Moses had no idea. He didn't know who Jesus was. He didn't know that Jesus was coming. But how much do you want to bet that as the Holy Spirit is inspiring Moses to write this, that he undoubtedly had Christ on his mind? I'd be willing to bet the world on that. And so we we have to understand and recognize that while the book of Exodus comes long before Jesus ever walks the face of the earth, that, that this is part of God's broader story. This is part of his larger story. And he's pointing us to the, the crescendo or the climax, which is fulfilled in the person of Christ. And so let's understand here the flow of the story. Understanding that while Exodus is a story in and of itself, it's part of a much larger story. And part of recapturing a biblical literacy is understanding the broader story of the person and work of Christ throughout all of history. In fact, I came across this great quote uh, that I want to read to you. It's a little bit lengthy, so bear with me. But I think this is really helpful for us as we think about Exodus as a whole. We're told this, the Bible was not primarily written to be read in 10 verse chunks. We have cut the Bible down to size. There are some bits, like the Psalms or James, that are written in very short bursts, but most of it, including Paul's letters, the Gospels, and so on, are to be read in order, to be experienced the way you experience a symphony. Now imagine if you were to go to a concert and you got the first ten bars of Beethoven's Fifth, and then the conductor turned around and said, Okay, that's all for this week. Come back the same time next week and we'll have the next ten bars. You would think, Wait, what? And if somebody said, Well, if you listen to the whole thing, you'd never remember it all. You would think to yourself, that's not the point. You don't listen to it in order to remember, but you listen to it in order to be swept along in the full flow and sweep and flood of it. To to see the broader story, to be captured by the beauty and the grandeur of all that God is doing. And so let's begin to put Exodus into its proper context. Exodus is the second of five books that comprise what is called the Pentateuch, which is... Is, is, is so um, thrillingly uh, just titled for five books. Okay, Pentateuch means five books. And it's the first five books of the Bible. And, and so, so you, can't, you can't even pull Exodus outside of those first five books. It's one volume in a set of five that's telling a singular story. Let me give you a couple of contemporary examples to try to help you understand. Anyone ever heard of a, a movie series called Star Wars? Right? Raise your hand if you've heard of Star Wars. Some of you haven't heard of Star Wars? Are you kidding? All right, some of you are like, well, I just didn't want to raise my hand, okay? Exposed. All right, but all of us have heard of Star Wars, right? And, and it's this, what, what do we have, eight now? Like, I, I'm not much of a Star Wars nerd, and, and one of the things that has always frustrated me about Star Wars is um, I love chronology, so when you start with number four, I'm out, okay? Like, I'm just out. You lost me already. I don't want to go back and do the work. So let me give you another example, at least in my mind, that is more helpful because there's a chronology to it. It's a little bit dated, but Lord of the Rings. Okay, let's try this again. And, and maybe some of you legitimately haven't heard of the Lord of the Rings. Who knows who the Lord of the Rings is, okay? Most of us know that. So here's the deal with the Lord of the Rings. You could, you could, you could, um, who are we kidding? None of you are going to read the book. You could watch the movie, okay? You could sit down and you could watch Two Towers or you could watch Return of the King and you could understand that particular story and you could pick some things up. But there are certain things that you're not going to fully understand. You're like, what is this dude's Gollum? Like, Gollum is so weird. What is his deal? And why that awful haircut? And why the back and forth with the changing of the names? And like, I kind of get the thing with the ring, but I'm still a little bit confused. Why? Because you don't have the backstory on that. You have to have all three of those to fully understand the breadth of what's happening. And so even jumping into Exodus, it would behoove us to take a moment to step back and go, okay, let's talk about Genesis for a moment. Now, you could preach through the book of Genesis over the course of a year and still rush. Um, So I'm not going to hit everything in this. But let me just give you a couple of major highlights that help us to understand the thread of the story. Genesis 1 and 2. Those are great chapters. 
Sin has not entered into the world. God has created. And there's this beautiful, glorious harmony that exists between God and man. And it's just this incredible moment in human history. And then you get to Genesis 3, and everything is broken and fractured. And and what happens, starting in Genesis 3, all the way till the end of Revelation, God is at work to restore the harmony that is fractured and broken when sin entered into the world. And so sin enters into the world. Judgment enters into the world. Uh, Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden. Uh, chapter 4, uh, you've got the whole debacle with Cain and Abel. Uh, chapter 6, 7, and 8, you have the flood. Chapter 11, you have the Tower of Babel. And honestly, uh, Genesis 1 and 2 is this glorious harmony that exists between um, humanity and God. And by Genesis 11, we've seen multiple examples that, that we are so broken and fractured and lost. And it is just this bleak outlook for humanity. And then you get to Genesis 12 and it's like this glorious light breaks forth into that darkness because God uh, begins to engage with a particular individual named Abram and he makes this promise and this covenant with him. And he says, I'm going to give you a land and I'm going to make of you a great people and it's going to be for everybody. And then the rest of Genesis chronicles the, the, the movement of at that point in time, this family and how God begins to fulfill and play out those promises within that family. And towards the end of the book of Genesis, this guy named Joseph, most of us know who Joseph is, it's Abraham's great-grandson, uh, is, is sent in, in slavery down into Egypt, but it's really God's providence uh, to provide for his people, and they all end up coming down there because there's this great famine in their land. And that's where the book of Exodus picks up. In fact, if you were to read Exodus 1.1, it says this. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, which is an exact repeat of what you find in Genesis 46. It is a singular story. Listen, loved ones. It is a singular story running through multiple volumes. And it's part of this broader biblical arc that God is after. So here's what I want to do with the rest of our time. Okay, with that kind of as a, as a, as a very, um, some of you might be like, that took forever. No, that's actually a very simple overview. We could spend weeks talking about this stuff. But here's what I want to do with the rest of our time is I want to do just a quick flyover in terms of the book of Exodus. Not so much the story, not so much, well, okay, uh, there's the burning bush and then he's, you know, um, staff, snake, leprosy thing and, and no straw, make bricks, plagues. Not so much that. What I want to grab are the major themes. The, 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 the kind of the, the big thrust that we're going to see moving through uh, the book of Exodus over the coming months. Now, to do that, let me just say this. There's a huge difference between talking about the scriptures and preaching through the scriptures. And so I want to go to a text. I want us to be anchored in a text. And I want you to see these coming right out of the biblical text. And so the issue wasn't finding a text where we could do this. The issue was choosing one amongst many that did this really, really well for us. Because these are all major themes. We're going to see these things over and over and over again in the coming months. And so I want to do, I'm going to look at Exodus 6. And we're going to look at just the first nine verses of Exodus 6. And we're going to preach through that. And really have six points, and there's six major themes uh, that drive through the book of Exodus. These aren't the only themes in the book of Exodus, but I think these are the most prominent ones uh, and the most substantial ones. And so let me read uh, Exodus 6. I'll tell you what, why don't we stand as we honor the reading of God's word, and, um, and then we'll begin to preach uh, through these. Exodus 6, starting in verse 1 through verse 9, God's word says this uh, to you and I, loved ones. But the Lord said to Moses... Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. And I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who's brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession I am the Lord. And Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. And notice their response here. But they did not listen to Moses 
because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Go ahead and take a seat. Just a quick context note. The reason they didn't listen or the the, the, uh, broken spirit and harsh slavery tied to the fact that on the heels of this, what happened right before this, is where the people of Israel thought they were going to get to go out. Not only did they not get to go out and worship, uh, but they were actually uh, condemned in that now we're not even going to provide straw. The Egyptians aren't even going to provide straw. Go find the straw. Oh, and by the way, you're still going to make the same number of bricks, which gives us a little insight into their response. So, Here we go. Six themes, six major themes in uh, the book of Exodus that we see uh, consolidated right here. In fact, I'll just tell you at the out or right here at the outset, the final two we don't see because it's a failure on Israel's part, but they're unmistakably clear throughout the book of Israel. Uh, But for the rest of our time, we're going to look at these six themes. Here's the first. Uh, Make note of this theme. God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. Now, we see this in in both a very specific sense um, and and a a very immediate sense, but also in a much broader sense. And here's what I mean by this. Um, In a specific sense, uh, look at what he says in the first few verses. Uh, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. With a strong hand, he will send them out. With a strong hand, he'll drive them out of the land. And he goes on to say this in verse 4. I have also established my... My covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Now, uh, in an immediate sense, this is not the first time that God has told them, I'm going to give them a land. In fact, if you go back to the end of chapter 2, um, he's talking uh, at the end of chapter 2, it says their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Uh, in chapter 3, uh, verse 7 and 8, uh, we're told this, God says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and I've heard their cry because of their task masters and I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and with honey. Later in chapter three, uh, he says, I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, uh, you will not go empty. And so multiple times up until this point, God has said, I'm going to take you out. I'm going to take you out. I'm going to take you out. And he's just reminding them again, I told you I was going to do this. I'm going to do it. Now, in an immediate sense, it's with respect to I'm going to take you out of the land. In a broader sense, he's looking back to the promise of Abraham. I'm going to give you a people and I'm going to give you a land. Well, over the course of their time in Egypt, they have now moved from being a large family to now they are a nation. Okay, check on that one. Uh, How about the land piece? Well, we're enslaved by a foreign nation. Okay, I'm going to fix that. That's what God is saying here. God keeps his promises. Now, I wonder, I wonder what might change in your life and in my life if we really believed that truth. If we really believed that the same God who's making promises in the book of Exodus is the same God who's making and fulfilling promises in your life and in my life today. This is why we need books like Exodus. We need to be reminded of the fact that the God who kept promises 3,500 years ago is the, still, is the same God that's keeping promises today. How might our view of our marriage or of work or ministry or parenting or or, or living in our community, how might that change if in the core of who I am that I firmly believe that God still keeps his promises? Not this, well, maybe he'll do it. But this bedrock confidence in my guts and in my bones, he said it, so doggone it, he's going to do it. Now, on your sheet, on this little sheet, let me point something out real quick. There's this little um, series or sequence at the bottom. And I want to highlight this. We're going to come back to this over and over and over again in the coming weeks and months. Let me just walk us through this here real quick. And you notice this, this series and this progression. First of all, God has a plan. God has a plan. I don't think any of us would argue with this. Secondly, God's plan is a good plan. I don't think any of us would argue with this, with that either. Now, what I didn't put in here, uh, but what we w- w- would be appropriate is in that third line, God is working out his plan actively, perfectly, without issue. See, the thing that you and I get hung up on is this next line, that God's plan rarely works out the way that we think it will. That's where we get hung up. 
See, see, over and over again, not only in the book of Exodus, but throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, Israel is surprised by God's plan and not in a good way. They're going, well, we didn't think it was going to play out like that. or We didn't really want it um, to, to be this way. And so they don't like it or they fight against it or they're grumbling about it. And yet God is working out his plan in the same way. Hear me, hear me, hear me when I say this. In the same way that God is working out his perfect plan in your life today. He's working it out. Even when you can't see it. Even when you can't understand it even when you can't wrap your mind around it. In fact, I would suggest to you more often than not, that will be the case. That you at the very least won't be able to see it, if not fully understand it. But even as that is happening, God is working out his plan. Now see, the problem for us, we don't intellectually argue with this, but in our heart of hearts, we'll often argue with this. See, because we think, mistakenly, we think that we know best. And I have my limited perspective. I have what I can see. And so looking at that, I go, well, well, this is what would be best. Okay, you, I love you. You don't know everything. And so I've used this illustration before. I'll use it again. Uh, like you look at a ball. Now, at no point in time can you see all of this. And I can spin it around and at different times I can see most of it. But at no point in time can I see all of it. And I certainly can't see inside of it. This is a reference to my limited perspective. All of us have a limited perspective. How about God? And he sees the entirety of this inside and out throughout all of history. Very, very different perspective. Let me give you another example that might be helpful and, and, and maybe a little bit more pointed in this reality. So, I don't know, it's probably three, four, five months ago, I'm at home and I was having an argument with um, one of my sons. I'll leave it at that, okay? I won't tell you which one. Uh, so I'm having an argument with one of my sons, and he was just being a little bit delusional in terms of um, his particular proposition and this and whatnot. And so we're kind of going back and forth, back and forth. And finally, I was like, you know what? I'm wasting my time. He's just going to have to figure this out on his own the hard way. And so I'm just like, all right, you know what? Fine. You just, you're going to figure it out. And one day you'll... Uh, I don't think I said you'll come to realize that I was right and you were wrong, but maybe I did. I definitely thought it, okay? Um, um, and so I'm sinful too when I fight with my kids. I'm not any different. And so, I, but the, the beauty, right, and the grace of God, like 90 seconds later, here's this particular child, and Kara starts giving him, his younger sister, starts giving him some nonsense about some particular thing. And so they start going back and forth. And of course, as a parent, you're just like, uh-huh, uh-huh, well, this will be fun to watch it play out. And so my, my son, he turns and he looks at her, and I kid you not, He goes, Kara, I am older. I am wiser. I have seen this before. You cannot know what I know. (laughs) And as a parent, I'm like, this is gold, right? And so I'm like, I appreciate the logic. That's fair. And so they kind of finish up. And and so, of course, what do you do? You just like needle your way right back into that. And so you're like, hey, tell me more about that and that conclusion. And so we just start going and I'm just letting him enforce and entrench this reality. I'm older. I'm wiser. I know more. And what am I doing? I'm just feeding him rope, right? Like... And so then when he's just firmly set on that, I go, hey, can we walk back to that conversation you and I were having? And he stops and he's like, yeah. And you can see, right, the wheels are spinning. And I go, so based on your logic and your understanding, and it was just like everything sinks, right, you know? And then I just lovingly put my arm around him and I said, and I'm going to use that every single time until I die because I will always be older and I will always be wiser. And then we smiled and laughed. Here's what I want you to get about that. As silly and as funny as that is, that is you and I before God, right? He is, he has always been um, infinitely wise, infinitely powerful, infinitely knowing. And you and I, we have this very, very limited perspective and how foolish of us. To go, well, well, God, you're not working it out the way that I want you to work it out. Here's what I want us to get. God is a God who keeps his promises. He is a faithful God. And, And if I really believed that, how differently would life look? How would I look at the particular 
illness that I'm walking through? How would I look at the particular issue in my marriage? How would I look at the particular difficulty with my work or with my child or whatever it might be if I really believe that God is a God who keeps his promises? See, because I think that changes everything. Changes everything for us. Here's the second thing. Not only do we see this theme of God as a God who keeps his promises, uh, the second theme, this is, this is the, a massive uh, overarching biblical theme, but it's the idea that God is present. God is present. Look at uh, chapter 6, verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, right? He's talking to Moses. He didn't send him a text, right? He didn't fire off an angel. Hey, go tell Moses this. No, he's talking to Moses. He's with him. You jump down, uh, verse 5. Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves and have remembered my covenant, right? He hears the people. Later, he talks about in verse 7, I'm going to take you to be my people, and I will be your God, right? We're going to be together. This isn't someone who's distant. This isn't someone who's far off. This isn't someone who, who doesn't hear or only hears occasionally. This is a God who comes to be present with his people. Now you go back to uh, Exodus 2, right? I got, got heard the cries of his people, right? He's in tune with his people. And in fact, the second half of the book of Exodus is going to lay out all of the specific ways that God is going to be present with the nation. God is a God who's present. This is a theme that, that, that's rooted all the way back in the Garden of Eden, that God longs to be with his people. It's culminated at the end of Revelation when God comes and dwells with his people. And this is what is worked out throughout all of human history. God seeking to restore the harmony that was fractured and broken when sin entered into the world. This is what God is seeking to remedy, is our alienation from God. God is a God who is close, who is present, who is near. Do you believe that? He is with us. Remember what David said? Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why, David? Why would you say that? For you are with me. He got it. He totally got it. See, what I want you to understand is you don't walk through anything alone. Nothing. There's not been a moment in your life that you have been alone. I'm not saying you haven't felt that way. I'm not saying you haven't struggled with that. I'm just telling you the biblical reality is you have never been alone. Because we have a God who is present just make one other note with respect to this real quick, and, and I won't press it hard here because we will when we get to Exodus chapter 6, but look at verse 2 and verse 3. God spoke to Moses, and here's what he says to him. He says, I am the Lord. And then notice what he says about that particular name. He says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, different name, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. What's fascinating about what's happening at this particular point in biblical history is that in Genesis, God's name and, and how he referred to himself referenced the power and the sovereignty and the majesty of God, that God is huge and enormous and all powerful. But what he's telling Moses and the people of Israel right here is, this is the same name that refers to God as a relational God and God as a covenant-keeping God. Saying, I'm with you. We're together. There's, there's a, a closeness in this. God is a present God. Do you know that? Do you know that he's walking with you? Do you know that the, the relational covenant-keeping God of, of, of the Old Testament as well as the New Testament is engaged in your life, cares deeply about the things that are going on in front of you, and is walking with you every step of the way? God is present. Thirdly, notice this. God is powerful. God is powerful. Verse 1, but the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do. Make a note. Check out what I'm about to do. You'll see what I'll do to Pharaoh. And he goes on, he says, For with a strong hand he'll send them out, and with a strong hand he'll drive them out of the land. Now, Pharaoh is nothing more than an instrument or a tool or a pawn in God's hand. 
God is the active agent in this. God is driving this. Pharaoh is simply responding to all that God is going to do here. Okay, well, he's going to drive them out for what purpose? Well, what we see in verse 6 and verse 7. I'm going to bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I'm going to deliver you from slavery. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to take you to be my people. I mean, we see this, this, this reality, this theme of God's power in spades throughout the book of Exodus. From the burning bush to the whole snake staff thing, the leprosy, non-leprosy, the ten plagues, which is an affront on the Egyptian gods, the parting of the Red Sea, the pillar of fire and, and the cloud that leads the people. It rains bread. I mean, that's insane. It rains bread. And for your weekly forecast, hey, on Thursday and Friday, we're going to see a little bit of bread fall. I mean, that's nuts. It never, I mean, I, like, why doesn't it rain spaghetti or ice cream or sushi? Or, I mean, but it doesn't rain anything, right? It just rains water or nothing, but it's going to rain bread for years on the people. In fact, so powerful, so powerful is the work of God in this particular season that 40 years later, after the people have stumbled and bumbled about in the wilderness, when they're on the other side of the Jordan River, looking towards Jericho, on their way to come in, what is Rahab telling the spies? We're terrified of you. For 40 years, like a bunch of bumbling idiots, they've stumbled around in the wilderness. And yet, what are they They're like? No, no, no. Your God, your God has a power that no other God has. In fact, the, the, the biblical language is that our hearts melt before you. Now, see, I wonder, I wonder when in the last time was the last time in your life when you believed that God was truly all powerful over all things. When's the last time that you've just had this sense of awe or, or, or be, been overwhelmed by the consuming power with who God is? I always love that passage at the end of the book of Job. Job and his cheeseball friends have gone back and forth for 30-something chapters, and then God shows up. And, and literally the first thing he tells Job is, put on your big boy pants. That's the Hebrew equivalent of what he's telling him. And then he begins to tell them, he's like, hey, did you measure the earth? Did you sink the bases of the earth, the foundation of the earth into place? And this jumped out at me. I was reading it again this week, and, and probably because I'm living in this space, but he, he talks about swaddling the ocean. I mean, like I, I got this newborn, right? And they're kind of kicking and screaming, and you're like trying to wrap a blanket, and God's like, yeah, I do that with the ocean. So you watch those images of Hurricane Harvey and God's like, yeah, he puts that, he wraps that up in a blanket, like a little baby. That's the overwhelming power of God. And the same God who's doing that in Job and the same God who's doing that in Exodus is the same God that is actively at work in your life and in my life today. Now, not to be cold or harsh, but what issue, loved one, what issue do you have in your life that's bigger than those things? I mean, seriously, like, like what is going on in your life that the reality of the power of God is somehow shrunken or minimized or diminished? It's like, well, you might be able to swaddle the ocean, but you can't. That's crazy talk. It's crazy to think that way. Literally within just over the scope of a chapter in Mark's gospel, Mark recounts a few different things that Jesus does. Here they are in summary. Uh, with a few words, Jesus, uh, Jesus uh, stops the storm. He calms the sea. And then he gets out of the boat and there's this demonically oppressed man and he casts the demons out of him. And then from there he goes along and, and he's on his way to deal with a sick girl. And in the process, there's a woman who's been sick for 12 years and by touching him, she's healed. In that process, this little girl dies and they're like, Hey, don't bother us. And he's like, get out of here. Let's go. And he raises her from the dead. Over the scope of a chapter, <clears throat> Jesus has conquered the natural world. He has conquered the physical world. He has conquered sickness and he has conquered death. Honestly, what do you got? Like, what do you got that you're like, well, what about this? Like, he hasn't even warmed up or stretched out. He's just said a few words and done that. He's all powerful. And yet I wonder for how many of us do we really truly believe that God is powerful over all things? See, because when we begin to recognize this and begin to realize the, just the, 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 the all-consuming power of who God is, all of a sudden the issues in life just take on a different hue and a different tint. 
Now, let me just make one other note that I think is important in this, and let's not get lost in the larger reality. It's important to remember that God, even though he's working out his power, um, that in the working out of his plan, it will not always show up in the particular time or place that we want. And so inasmuch as God is very, very clearly demonstrating his power and talking about what he is going to do, keep in mind what had just happened. That things had gone very, very poorly for the nation of Israel. And now we're collecting straw and we've got to make the same number of bricks. And so don't, don't lose in your life. Well, yeah, God's all powerful, but he didn't fix this. No, that's part of him working out his plan. Don't think for a moment that he couldn't blink or utter a word and solve everything. But his primary purpose is not our happiness, it's our holiness. And so he's going to push us to whatever limit possible in order to accomplish that. God is powerful. Fourthly, notice this, verse 6 and 7, um, God delivers his people. God delivers his people. Therefore, say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I'll bring you out from under the people. Uh, uh, sorry, say, uh, say therefore to the people of Israel, I'm sorry, I am the Lord, and I'll bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment, and I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who's brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. God delivers his people. I mean, you could argue that this is the overarching theme of the book of Exodus. In fact, on your little sheet, uh, one of the taglines you're going to hear us say over and over and over again is this line that God calls us out of sin and bondage and into relationship with him. That is the driving theme of the book of Exodus. That God is going to draw us out of sin and bondage and, and slavery to that, but he does so for a specific purpose. God doesn't free you from your sin to go do whatever you want. God frees you from your sin to be drawn into relationship with him. This is a prefiguring of the gospel. That God delivers his people here and he's going to deliver at Passover. I mean, think about Passover through the lens of the cross for a moment. We're spared destruction because we're covered by the blood of the lamb. Oh yeah, that has no New Testament implication. Yeah, right. What does John the Baptist say when he sees Jesus? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I bet John the Baptist was thinking about Passover when he said that. I know exactly what's going to happen here. God delivers his people, rescued from bondage of sin and death through Jesus. These major themes of what God is doing. Now, we've got two more. You might be like, I don't see either of, the, either of those other themes in here. It's because they're not in this particular text. Look at verse 9. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. And so there's just utter failure on Israel's part at this point. And so let me just talk about two major themes that we see drive through the book of Exodus that really tie to our response to what God is doing, neither of which we see here. But the first being this, that we worship God. We worship God. This is the whole point of the Exodus. This is the whole point of them being asked to go out. This is the whole point of driving them away from the Egyptians and into, uh, well, the wilderness and eventually the promised land. It's to go out and to worship the Lord. Simply put, this should have been the overwhelming, overarching response of the people. But that's not what happens. See, we have to be willing to read the Bible honestly. Here's what I mean by that. The book of Exodus, and we're going to see this over and over and over again, much like the rest of the Old Testament, much of the New Testament, is full of examples of how God's people fail. I mean, they've failed miserably. The first eight verses of Exodus 6 are awesome. And they don't listen. They reject it. Now, what you've got to understand is what was totally atypical of ancient writing was to chronicle and to detail your failures. People didn't do this. In fact, one of the biggest knocks on the, the historical reality of the book of Exodus is scholars go, well, there's no other outside source that tells us about this. Well, if it was written on papyri, it, that stuff's long gone. That stuff doesn't last 3,500 years. Here's the other side of that. What Egyptian pharaoh is like, hey, let's memorialize one of the most epic failures that we've ever had on stone. That's not happening. 
No king would do that. Hey, let's, for the rest of human history, let's record the fact that we totally screwed this up. And yet, over and over and over again, what we're going to realize is the failure of God's people, which in one sense is troubling, but in another sense, isn't that so freeing? That over and over and over again in in the Bible, what we don't see are perfect people. We see screw-ups who fail miserably, who try hard and they get it wrong again. And then they make one step forward, but then it's like 15 steps back. And I don't know about you, but I read the Bible and I go, man, I can relate to all these guys. I know exactly how they feel. I know exactly where they're at because I live that same reality. And this honest reading of the scriptures, they did not listen to Moses. Now, that's not an excuse for you to go, hey, they didn't listen. We don't have to listen. That's not the point, okay? Uh, the, the point is that God doesn't expect a perfect people. God understands that he's rescuing a very broken people. And our response to God's rescue, one, is that we worship God. The other response that we're going to see over and over and over again in the book of Exodus, and this might surprise you a little bit, but it's that we live on mission for God. The book of Exodus is incredibly missional in its application and its push for our lives. In fact, some people have referred to the book of Exodus as a missionary handbook. Because what we're going to find out really, really quickly is that the book of Exodus, much like really all of the New Testament, isn't just about Israel. It's actually about the nations. Hear me, hear me, hear me when I say this. God did not become missional and God did not become concerned about the nations when Jesus showed up. God was concerned about the nations in Genesis 1 and 2. And what we're going to see over and over and over again in this Old Testament book is God's heart for the world. Not just a particular nation or a particular people. God has always been missional. Here's just a few of a number of examples we could go to. Genesis 12, his promise and his covenant with Abram. It's going to be for every family of the earth. I mean, I don't know how you boil that down to anything less than every family of the earth. That's very broad, not narrow. In Exodus 9, um, God's going to say this, for this purpose I've raised you up to show you my power. Why, God, why? So that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Please articulate to me how that is not for everybody. I think the most compelling place we see this is in Exodus 19 when God tells the nation of Israel, you're going to be to me a kingdom of priests. And if you understand the role of priests, you understand that the priest was the go-between of God and man. And what God was really telling the nation of Israel was, you guys have the distinct privilege and the distinct, distinct honor, but also the distinct responsibility to share me with the rest of the world. That was the intent of choosing the nation. Not because God's like, hey, you guys are better than everyone else. Those Hittites, those guys are lame. But man, Israel, you guys are awesome. That's not what's happening. God's going, no. You get the distinct privilege of telling everyone else about how awesome I am. You're the go-between. It's the same purpose that we see in the church today. Right? When we talk about mission... We're talking about the foundational purpose and work of God that he's been working out throughout all of human history. Now, I can't prove this. Um, I can only give conjecture on this. So maybe I'll just step away here and and, and articulate uh, what I think. Um, But here's the thing. As much as I can't prove it, you can't disprove it. So there's just going to be some mystery on this until we get to heaven, all right? But I am convinced, I am convinced that some of the Egyptians actually left with the people of Israel. And I'm convinced for a couple reasons. One, because they clearly understood. We get to the plagues and you start walking through that. They're like, man, we we know your God is all powerful. But when you look through the biblical scriptures and when you look through the rest of, of, right, this story and what we see in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, we know that there are foreigners with them. And I think some of the people of Egypt went with them. I think from the very beginning. It's, it's now, now, the problem is I can't say, hey, in Exodus 36, 7, it says, and all the Egyptians came with us. That's the problem. That's why I can't prove it. But you can't disprove it, so we're just going to have to live in this uncertainty for a little while, all right? Um, but we live on mission for God. We live on mission for God. I'll tell you, I have never been more excited for a sermon series than I am for this book. 
which is saying a lot because I get pretty geeked up just about every time we get into a new sermon series, all right? Um, but, but there's something different and something distinct about this. I think maybe part of it is just what we really need as a church. I know some of this is what I need individually and personally is I need these truths just cemented into my life. But I think part of it is this is one of the most intriguing and gripping stories that's ever been told. Partly because it's just this phenomenal story, but partly because it's the story of every human heart. That God is pursuing and chasing and seeking to reconcile and draw back into this perfect harmony, his people. And so even people who don't love Jesus or follow him, who don't believe in the Bible, they love the story of Exodus. I think deep down because they know at some level they can relate with it. So as we move through this book, We're going to be reminded over and over and over again that we serve a God who keeps his promises, that we have a God who is present and with us. We have a God who is powerful over all things. We have a God who delivers his people. And in response, God help us, God help us, that we would be people who worship God and we would be people who live on mission for God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your great truths. We thank you for... Um, these themes and these realities and, 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 and these truths and principles that drive not just from the Gospels or from the pen of Paul or James or John, but God, that drive from the very beginning of your scriptures and your word. God, we thank you that your story hasn't changed. And your story hasn't changed because you haven't changed and your intent hasn't changed. And so, God, would you help us in the coming weeks and months as we move through this book, as we work through this book, to have just a full sense of of the incredible work that you're doing? Would you help us to know with great clarity uh, all that you have for us? And, God, would you help us deep down in our hearts and in the core of our souls to believe these things with all that we are and just the incredible way that life changes when we begin to truly believe you're a God who keeps his promises, you're a God who is present, that you're a God who's powerful, that you're a God who delivers his people. God, would you help that be cemented deep within our hearts and within our souls? We pray this in your name. Amen.